0: Welcome back to Hello Submarine. This is Arianne. It has been a very long time since my last episode. I started a new job in July of 2022 and it's incredibly demanding. And ever since then, I just, a lot of my side projects kind of fell off the radar. So I'm very excited right now to have a little bit of time to put towards this. And I do want to try to make it a priority again because it's something I enjoy quite a lot. Um, today's episode is about death, and I know that sounds very dark and depressing, but I actually want to try to put a positive spin on it. I think that our culture, in particular Western culture, doesn't really contend with death. Like, obviously we have to contend with it on some level because it's unavoidable, but for the most part, I think we really sweep it under the rug, and I think there's a lot of very strange side effects that happen in our culture when we don't deal with death like for example how we talk about the dead versus the living i'm gonna get into this later with a mini michael jackson deep dive stay tuned to find out how i've managed to weave that shit into a death episode i also want to talk about the universe because i feel like the nature of the universe is highly intertwined with the nature of death if the universe is like random and chaotic then death is probably final However, if the universe has like a higher order, maybe death isn't final. I don't know. That's kind of how I would break it down. I do want to also preface this entire episode with I am not attached to my philosophies in the way that some people are. I really love to speculate about things. And I think a part of being a good speculator and a good sort of amateur philosopher is knowing when to, like, not be incredibly attached to your own ideas. When we get into the world of speculation, I think we have to sort of take everything with a grain of salt and we have to be really open to other perspectives. I don't want that to deter people from being speculative just because, you know, it's not an exact science. I'm really open to counter arguments. I'm open to different perspectives. I'm open to having my mind changed. And so as I talk about these things, I really just want to make it clear that it's my current perspective and it could very much shift with new information. So without further ado, let's get into the Michael Jackson portion of this episode. The reason I want to talk about the death of Michael Jackson is because I think he is An excellent example of the way that we talk about the dead versus the living and how our collective consciousness sort of just changes when somebody dies. So, I'm going to get into that. But before we dive into that, I do want to issue a trigger warning. I'm going to be talking a little bit about the child sexual abuse allegations levied against Michael Jackson and just some of the outcomes there. I'm not going to get into the details. But I don't really think we can have a conversation about Michael Jackson or the death of Michael Jackson and the way it was handled in the media without kind of getting into that a little bit. So if you are still here, I will assume that you were not deterred by that trigger warning and that we can move along. So I want to try to explain like why the death of Michael Jackson feels so relevant in an episode about death. It's really kind of about the media and how the media responded to Michael Jackson both before and after his death. I remember being a kid in the 90s and starting to sort of hear about Michael Jackson's uh, the sexual assault allegations. Uh, they first started coming out in 1993. So from the Wikipedia article 1993 child sexual abuse accusations against Michael Jackson, Quote, in 1993, Evan Chandler, a dentist and screenwriter based in Los Angeles, accused the American singer Michael Jackson of sexually abusing his 13 year old son, Jordan Chandler. Jackson had befriended Jordan after renting a vehicle from Jordan's stepfather. Though Evan Chandler initially encouraged the friendship, he later confronted his ex wife, who had custody of Jordan, with suspicions that their relationship was inappropriate. End quote. So this was settled out of court, I believe, in 1994 and kind of was i don't know like there i remember a lot of media around this and it's very obviously difficult to go back and like see what was going on in the media in the 90s because this is pre internet you know like i'm using google search trends or google trends rather uh to try to gain a clear understanding of some of this stuff and i can't go back uh to anywhere before 2004 and so this is gonna like be a lot about my my memory in terms of like remembering the way that it was handled in the media. I remember it being on all the time. I remember it being super highlighted. I remember people hating Michael Jackson like he was not a hero. He was not the king of pop in the nineties. Like it was not okay to like Michael Jackson then, or it seemed that way. Um, and then you know like I guess. People stopped talking about it for a while. And then there was another set of allegations that came out in the 2000s. So in 2003, a documentary was made called Living with Michael Jackson. It was made by a British journalist named Martin Bashir. He interviewed Michael Jackson. He toured the Neverland Ranch. Um there was kind of like a vibe of like defending Michael Jackson and the Neverland ranch kind of like here, look, this is why Michael Jackson invites kids into his bed. Like it's, it's chill. It's cool. Like, don't worry about it. And I think Michael Jackson, you know, like really had no idea that this was going to have a negative backlash. Like I think he participated in it almost as an attempt to clear his name. And when it came out, people were like, oh shit, like this is actually hella sketchy. Like we should probably keep looking into this. And so it prompted this other set of investigations that went on. And he was then accused of a bunch of stuff as a result of that. So from the Wikipedia article trial of Michael Jackson, quote, Jackson was indicted on four counts of molesting a minor, four counts of intoxicating a minor to molest him one count of attempted child molestation, one count of conspiring to hold Gavin and his family captive, and conspiring to commit extortion and child abduction, end quote. And the Gavin being referred to there uh, is Gavin Arviso. This is a young boy who was 13 years old at the time of the alleged abuse. So those are kind of the important points in the timeline. This is all prior to Michael Jackson's death. And so this is the '90s, the early 2000s, and he's just dealing with all of these allegations of sexual assault, all of this hate in the media. And from what I remember, he was not beloved. Um, he was, you know, pretty much exiled. Like he apparently went to live in Bahrain and then Ireland after the after the trial, and. You know, like he was obviously extremely affected by all of the very negative media coverage. And that is not me saying that the media coverage was incorrect or wrong. I think that there's a conversation to be had about the media for sure and how it deals with people who do things that are bad. And there's a conversation to be had about our society and how we deal with people who do things that are bad and how we don't know how to be in the same spaces as people who have done horrible shit and we don't know how to forgive people or allow them to come back from the really horrible shit that they've done. That's a whole conversation. And I think that's a valid conversation. And actually, I I do think I want to get into that even in this episode, but right now I'm just kind of giving the landscape of what the various allegations and court cases and settlements were before he died and sort of what the media coverage of him as a person was before he died. So on June the 25th, 2009, Michael Jackson dies at age 50. He was getting some sort of treatment and he had received a combination of sedatives for this treatment and it was ended up being a lethal combination and he died and Conrad Murray was found guilty of involuntary manslaughter in his death and that occurred in 2011 the conviction for that and Conrad Murray was his doctor that was administering the drugs now this is where things start to get really fucking wonky Because I remember his death and I remember like it was a huge event. Like it was all that anybody was talking about for a very long time. And it was suddenly as though Michael Jackson was a hero and he was the king of pop and he was this legendary cultural figure who had brought us nothing but good stuff. And we revered him and we loved him and every radio station was playing his songs and nobody, not one person, it seemed, was discussing the allegations, the court cases, the sexual abuse. Like it was gone. It was, it was as though it was the same fucking media reporting on his death that was dragging his name through the mud and treating him like the worst human being in the world, this exact same media was now glorifying him in his death. And I, I just remember being so fucking confused because I really didn't at that time believe that that's how we were. I didn't believe that we as a society could lie to ourselves so thoroughly that we could go from demonizing to celebrating the same human being overnight because they died. and. It was a big lesson for me, I guess, in life to sort of see that happen and understand that like, this is who we are. This is what we do. This is how we grapple with death. We just prop people up on pedestals and act as though they never did anything wrong. Why do we do that? Like, why do we, why do we take this thing that every single person has to do, no matter how shitty you are, no matter how amazing you are, we all have to die. Why do we make that some sort of like highway to heroism? So this is, you know, this is the overarching question that I'm trying to ask. This is the overarching theme that I'm trying to explore. Why are we so bad at dealing with death? That we can tell like society-sized lies to ourselves. <laughs> Cuz that's what it feels like. It just it just felt like oh, we didn't we didn't totally destroy this man's life. We didn't We didn't rake his name through the mud every fucking day for years, half a quarter of a century. We didn't do that. We loved Michael Jackson. We revere Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson is our king. Like that, that's really scary to me that we can do that on such a mass level. And I know that that's the media, and I know that not everybody was thinking that. And I'm certainly sure that like any of the people that were affected by the abuse. Uh, we're not thinking that, and I mean that's kind of where this all gets really, really harmful because because now you have all of these survivors of sexual abuse watching somebody who either harmed them or somebody who was accused of doing something that happened to them as well, and everybody just loves this person. Everybody's celebrating them. Uh, there's something really, really dark and scary about that. So. You know, I wanted to look into this a bit deeper and make sure that I wasn't just remembering things wrong. So, like I said, I've been doing the Google Trends thing. If you don't know what Google Trends is, it's basically just an extension of the Google search engine where you can put in a date range. I think the earliest date you can choose is January 1st, 2004. Um, Anything before that, I guess, is just like pre internet. You're not going to be able to see it, pre Google. And yeah, so you can see in the date range, like how active. search term has been. The y-axis is from zero to 100 and the 100 basically means that's the most active it ever was when it was like at its peak and then you can kind of see on the graph how popular a particular search term has been like over time. The terms that I looked at for Michael Jackson um, were Michael Jackson pedophile, Michael Jackson child abuse, Michael Jackson allegations and what I found was in line with what I remember Um, and I was surprised a little bit to like have that kind of confirmed because like I don't always trust memory especially when it's old memory like (laughs) my recollections from the mid-90s to early 2000s. So currently I am looking at Michael Jackson pedophile as a search term in Google Trends, and the time frame I'm looking at is um, January 1st, 2004 to present, basically as early and as late as I possibly could put in for the time range. And in 2000, what is this? Looks like May 2005, roughly, That's when there was, like, the peak. That's when the graph goes all the way up to 100, which, again, means that's when the most people ever of all time were searching Michael Jackson pedophile. So that's 2005. That's when it peaks. It goes back down to 50, kind of around September 2005, um so there's this real peak in the early part of the year, which totally makes sense because that's when the trial was happening. The one that happened after the living with Michael Jackson documentary aired that caused uh, the investigations, et cetera. So that's kind of in line. Then in September, it drops down to kind of about, I don't know like fifty five percent of where it was at peak times. It drops down to... About 40% in 2006. It has a bit of a spike again in 2007. In 2008, we're at about 40%. I'm saying percent because it's like 40% of like the greatest possible number. I don't know if that's the correct way to (laughs) represent this data, but I'm doing my best. And then in 2009, when Michael Jackson dies, the search term Michael Jackson pedophile is at about 30%. So pretty low comparatively. And then after that, it goes down kind of hovering around hovering really between like zero and 10. And then there's another spike in 2019, which lines up with another documentary that was made that I'm going to talk about. But before I get into that, I just want to also mention that the other Like I said, I looked at Michael Jackson allegations and Michael Jackson child abuse also on Google Trends and saw like the exact same peaks and little bumps in the data. It was obviously a little bit different because these are different search words, but like very much the same trend. And so this is really in line with what I remember. This is like exactly what I thought happened, but it's just again interesting to see it confirmed by this data that. As soon as he died, like, people really stopped. They weren't invested in that storyline anymore. The storyline was no longer suited for people. Like, they wanted to believe and nurture another story, which was that he was just this amazing musician and a legend, and he left nothing but good things behind. So the other thing I wanted to mention, like I said, that documentary... So 2019, where we, you know, we see a little bit of a spike in the trends for, you know, Michael Jackson allegations, Michael Jackson pedophile, Michael Jackson child abuse. Michael Jackson child abuse, actually, if you Google that on Google Trends, in 2019, there wasn't even a spike on that. Like people weren't even Googling that more in 2019. The reason I'm talking about 2019 is because that's when Leaving Neverland came out, which was the documentary that I wanted to talk about which um, was made by Dan Reed. It's a British filmmaker. And it's about Wade Robson and James Safechuck, who alleged that they were abused by Michael Jackson when they were children. Um, It was made by Channel 4, a UK broadcaster, and uh, HBO. And it premiered at Sundance um, on January 25th, 2019. So this was like, a huge statement about Michael Jackson. Like, this was very much from the reviews that I've read, like, a convincing portrait of Michael Jackson as a pedophile, as a child abuser. And it had, like, 98% on Rotten Tomatoes, but a very low rating in terms of Google reviews, which, like, who knows what that means. But it was... You know, like, this is 2019. This is, like, the tail end of the Me Too movement. And by tail end, I mean tail end of, like, the Me Too movement really peaking. Um, Again, using Google search trends. um, When I looked at the Me Too movement, it was very much Googled between 2017 and 2019. So this is right there on the tail end of it a movie, a documentary is made about this huge celebrity accusing him of child abuse and pedophilia. And we don't even really see much of a spike in the data Um, other than the, sp- the search term Michael Jackson pedophile gets like a small spike in April of 2019. Like that's April. That's not even January when the movie came out. It looks like it was sort of spiking... After January, that's when it starts to grow to that eventual 38 out of 100. But, you know, and that's that's just a brief spike. And then it goes right back down in the same year, like June 2019, back down to that like 10%-ish mark, like between 10 and zero. So people weren't even really that interested or, or that concerned, it seems like, about these allegations then. And I think what I find so disturbing about all of this is just like the commitment, (laughs) the commitment that the media and the public seem to have to Michael Jackson to not like want to tarnish his name. And the only reason that I can think of that this is happening is because he's dead. And because in his death, we've had some sort of like break, some sort of like mental break with like what the reality is, it feels like. So the last things I just kind of wanted to look at on Google Trends to just compare and contrast was like a straight up search for Michael Jackson. And when I do that, I see a spike in 2009, which is obviously when he died. So that's when it was at 100%. So the highest peak ever is when he died. And drops fairly quickly after that back to around the 10% mark and it kind of just stays there for the rest of the rest of time there looks to be the tiniest spike around the 2019 era which may or may not be correlated with the leaving neverland documentary pretty hard to say you know and i want to clarify as i'm talking about this data that like it's pretty tough to know what it means Yes, we can talk about where there's like spikes um in certain search terms, but ultimately I've only searched three or four things here and I'm kind of drawing my conclusions based on that and my own memory and perhaps there's confirmation bias. As somebody who works in tech and who's dealt with data, like I'm very aware of how biased humans can be when we read data and yeah, I just don't want to Sort of sit here and behave as though I'm drawing any really firm conclusions. I'm kind of not. I kind of am. What I really want to hit home here and what I want to talk about is just how wild this is. Like, Michael Jackson is one of the most famous people to ever have lived. And he was caught up for a quarter of a century in a huge child abuse scandal that followed him around constantly until he died and then suddenly disappeared. And I just don't know that we have anything really to compare it to. You know, I, I want to compare it to something like R. Kelly or Bill Cosby, who are like these very famous people that have been, you know, their reputations have been severely tarnished by similar types of allegations and court cases, etc., But you just can't really compare those people because they're still alive. And in their aliveness, they're not getting glorified. And I I really don't know that in this day and age, if somebody like Bill Cosby died, if we would start glorifying him, there's something about this all being kind of in 2009 and pre 2009, which was before social media, really, or at least before... Social media as we understand it now. And I think that at that time, we were a lot less capable of having really nuanced conversations about people. And we also were being fed things kind of directly from mainstream media. And we were more used to consuming information that way and for that to kind of be the only way that we got that information. Nowadays, I do wonder, like, if someone like a Bill Cosby died, like, I don't, I don't know how we would react. I don't know if there would be that, there probably would be that subset of people that just went ahead and started glorifying him. And without, you know, a crystal ball, I don't fucking know. But, all right, let's, let's get into the Queen. (laughs) Now that we've talked about Michael Jackson, let's talk about the death of the Queen, because I think this is, this is kind of an interesting space. Like, the Queen also was somebody who was extraordinarily famous and quite revered people love the queen people love the royal family but i think that there was enough criticism about colonialism in the year of 2022 and before that by the time the queen died i don't think it was as easy to just like shove everything under the rug and again, we're in this other new age of social media where we are all having more nuanced conversations with each other and hearing from more people. Like, there's just more input with influencers and podcasters and independent journals and blogs and newsletters and what have you. There's like so much more that we can draw on to make our conclusions than just the mainstream media. And I do think that that makes a big difference. But there was still like such a large portion of the population that was unwilling to discuss any faults that the queen had. Like people were like, truly like, don't talk to me about that. I'm mourning this person (laughs) that I don't know. And I mean, the mourning of the queen by people who don't know her, I find fascinating. But, you know, that's kind of just the nature of celebrity, I suppose, people really do feel like they know these people when they, when they don't. And so, you know, I know that that plays a really big role. But again, there was so many people that were not willing to discuss the reality of the situation when she died. And I really think that death is a great time to reflect on the legacy that somebody has left behind. What if we did that more honestly Could that potentially encourage people who have a lot of power and who will be remembered in history, whether positively or negatively, to do better things with the time and the resources that they have? You know, sometimes I, like, think about billionaires and I think about, like, someone like a Jeff Bezos, and I'm like, look what, like, why do you want to be remembered this way? And I ask myself, like, do you, do these people care about legacy? Like, I'm somebody who cares about how I'm going to be remembered. I'm not trying to be famous. Like I'm not trying to leave behind like any kind of huge, incredible legacy, but it matters to me. Like I want to leave the world better than how I found it. And I find it really strange that there's, there's so many people that like could do things that are quite heroic and could be remembered in a very different way. And they don't care Perhaps that has nothing to do with our cultural perception of death, but, like, I don't know, it kind of seems like maybe that plays a role. Like, again, if we held people accountable even when they died, what would that look like? And I know we hold some people accountable. I don't want to say that, like, every person that ever has died, you know, their reputation was wiped and they got this sort of, like, glorification edit, you know, like, clearly many dictators have lived through the times, Pinochet, Hitler, like we don't remember them fondly. And I think that there's definitely a line that you can cross where you're not going to be remembered fondly regardless. But it is funny that child sexual abuse somehow didn't meet that bar in the Michael Jackson case. And I mean, I guess you can say like he did leave a legacy of of music behind and he really did make history in so many ways in the musical industry. And I think that is probably what saved him. He left a lot of good things in his wake, but the erasure of all of the super harmful shit is like, I don't know, that's there too that matters too it's part of the it's part of the story and i think we'd do a lot better if we didn't lie to ourselves about that so now that i've taken you through the story of michael jackson's death and how our cultural perspective shifted entirely after he died i just want to explain and highlight again why i even included that I included it because I believe the reason that we did that in the first place is due to the fact that we don't contend with death or have any healthy way of interacting with it. You know, if you're in Western culture, the only real options you have, I mean, there's millions of options, obviously, but the mainstream options that you have are Christianity and atheism, both of which are depressing, and I'm going to get into that shortly. But without these types of conversations and without the infrastructure in place to contend with what it means to die and what it means to lose people who were fully human and who had flaws, I think this is going to keep happening. We're going to continue to see people who have done harmful things having all of their negative contributions completely erased and being put up on this big pedestal. And this is very, very confusing for people. I myself have personal experience with losing someone in my life who did me a lot of harm. And there was a lot of difficulty in the first few years after that loss where I didn't know how to talk about my relationship with that person. I didn't know how to talk about the way in which I was grieving or not grieving because I had lost somebody who had done me so much harm versus somebody who had given me a lot of love. And I wish for myself and for everyone that when we lose people who harmed us, it was not such a mind fuck to be true to our own experiences and be true to what happened. And so I think that this whole episode is really my attempt to, I guess, contribute maybe a healthier perspective about death to the world in this very small way. All right, so with that, I think it's time to get into some optimistic death philosophy. So I just want to begin by talking about sort of the main schools of thought in Western culture in terms of like how we conceptualize death. Um, I think The two major ones, and there's obviously a lot of other ones as well, but the two major ones are Christianity and atheism. So if you're going to look at death from a Christian perspective, and just before I do that, I want to make very clear that I understand that Christianity can be practiced and interpreted in many different ways and that there are many wonderful people out there who practice Christianity who do it in a way that isn't harmful and that allows them to lead a fulfilling life. I don't believe that that's the mainstream um, facet of Christianity. I think, you know, I was raised Catholic. I'm very familiar with Catholicism and with Christianity. And so when I talk about it, I'm partially talking about it from my own experience and partially drawing on the experiences of people that I listen to, people that I know, as well as just like the historical context of Christianity, which I think speaks for itself. Also drawing upon the more modern context of Christianity, where we see Christian viewpoints leaking into political systems and playing huge roles in laws that are being made. That's the context I'm describing Christianity in. Again, I think there are ethical and fulfilling ways to live a Christian lifestyle. It's not the way that I would choose to organize my philosophies, but um, everybody should do whatever they want and do what works for them. And I think it definitely does work for some people. And I really want to make that clear before I jump into talking about some of the flaws, I guess, of the more mainstream Christian perspective. So with all of that in mind, I'm going to jump into what i think the christian perspective of death is the idea is that you have to live a very pious life and if you do everything correctly then you might get into heaven and if not you get to burn in hell for all of eternity so to me this is a very depressing outlook on death even though you know some might argue it's less depressing than atheism because there is like a hope for a good afterlife Um, I kind of disagree that it's less depressing than atheism because, like I said, you have to live a very pious life, which probably means denying yourself a lot of life's simple pleasures, denying yourself a lot of joy, living very by-the-rule book uh, for sort of the hope that maybe you'll get into, like, a good afterlife, and, you know, if you're wrong, If you uh, bet wrong on that one, you might have just wasted the one life that you had. You know, so that to me is like more depressing than than atheism. With atheism, you know, it's the belief that there are no deities. And that's kind of I did look at the Wikipedia definition and that was kind of the major overarching definition is that there are no deities to believe in. But I think that it would be fair to categorize atheists as not believing in an afterlife. I don't want to make a blanket statement here because perhaps it's possible to not believe in deities but still believe in an afterlife. I don't really know how that would work exactly, but I just want to leave space for the fact that this is my interpretation of atheism and the vast majority of atheists that I'm aware of don't believe in an afterlife. So let's just take that at face value. Academia is filled with atheists. As somebody who, like, I studied computer science, I went through a science degree, and I work with scientists as well in my day-to-day. And atheism is, like, very prominent in that genre of people. One of the atheists that stands out to me and I want to mention is Christopher Hitchens, and he's dead now. But he was a author and a like master debater and he also, you know, like a philosopher of sorts, right? And he was an atheist and his perspective, which was very compelling to me, um, is that he doesn't want to believe in an afterlife just because he's afraid to die. And it was kind of this whole idea that like if you believe in anything beyond this life or beyond what the eye can see it's just wishful thinking and you're only doing that because you're a big pussy that doesn't want to face the fact that death is just the end for us all and there is something about this that's like hmm yeah maybe he's right about that like nobody wants to have their worldview condensed down to like oh, I'm just too afraid and I'm in denial, and so that's why I have this whole worldview. Like, that sucks, right? So, like, I think there is something really compelling about that narrative of just, like, not lying to yourself to make things easier. But I sat with that philosophy for a long time. Like, Christopher Hitchens was the person who brought me the closest, I believe, to ever being, like, a full atheist because of that particular perspective. But over the years... I started to feel like that doesn't sit right. It doesn't sit right to deny myself any room for speculation um, because I'm afraid that the only reason I'm speculating is because I'm afraid, (laughs) you know? Like, I enjoy speculating. I enjoy thinking about these things. I think there's so much interesting stuff happening in the universe and on Earth, and, like, there's so much information at our fingertips it doesn't make sense to just sit there and be like, nope, there's nothing. And any speculation I do is just wishful thinking. Like, no, there's there's tons of compelling information out there that makes me feel like it's not logical to be an atheist anymore. And so I don't love the Christopher Hitchens spin on things as much as I once kind of like adhered to it. So like I said, science and academia. Traditionally quite atheist, but in the last few years, it feels like there's been a bit of a venturing into a realm of like more spirituality, if you want to call it that, or just sort of like an openness to the fact that, like, actually, we don't understand anything and the universe is very vast and we don't have explanations for things like consciousness or a lot of like universal concepts that we can observe. We kind of take a lot of things at face value and we're just like, well, that's the way that it is. But I think there is so much room to wonder, and there's so many things to wonder about, and so that's kind of what I'm about to get into, because I would like to try to express and share my own ideas about what I think happens when we die. Again, I'm not attached to these ideas, but these are my speculations right now. So, one of the things that my personal philosophy on death and on the universe really comes down to and is really built upon is self-similarity and fractal geometry and the golden ratio which are all super highly interconnected so on the page uh, the wikipedia page uh, for fractals i'll just quickly define this for you quote in mathematics a fractal is a geometric shape containing detailed structure at arbitrarily small scales usually having a fractal dimension strictly exceeding the topological dimension Many fractals appear similar at various scales, as illustrated in successive magnifications of the Mandelbrot set. This exhibition of similar patterns at increasingly smaller scales is called self-similarity. End quote. So self-similarity is really important here because self-similarity is something that we observe all over the universe. One really cool example that I'm going to throw in the mix is trees and lungs. So trees are kind of like the Earth's lungs, and they breathe in carbon monoxide, they breathe out oxygen, and then on the other side of the day, they, they do the opposite of that. So there, there's a breathing that's happening. The oxygen of the Earth is produced by trees. And then you have the human lung, which like all of the veins on the human lung look a lot like a tree. And I think it's very interesting that the structure that we use to breathe has visible characteristics similar to the structure that the earth uses to breathe. Fascinating shit. This similarity is so pronounced that the part that I'm talking about is actually called the bronchial tree. So I'm going to read from courses.lumenlearning.com. This is, uh, I guess, an educational article about the bronchial tree. Quote, the primary bronchi enter the lungs at the helium, a concave region where blood vessels, lymphatic vessels, and nerves also enter into the lungs. The bronchi continue to branch into a bronchial tree. A bronchial tree, or respiratory tree, is the collective term used for these multiple branched bronchi. The main function of the bronchi, like other conducting zone structures, is to provide a passageway for air to move into and out of each lung. In addition, the mucous membrane traps debris and pathogens. End quote. So all that to demonstrate that I'm not the only one recognizing the similarity between a tree and the lungs and it's more than just a functional similarity, but also a very strong visual similarity. Another thing that is a great example is the human body um, as compared to a cell. So if you look at a cell, it's made up of a nucleus, which is very similar to the human brain, a membrane which is like the skin on a human. And then beneath the membrane is the cytoplasm. And in the cytoplasm, which is a gel-like fluid, um, there's these little things called organelles, which very similarly represent the organs in a human. And those organelles are responsible for carrying out a bunch of functions, like our organs do, within the cell. So in our body, like our body is made up of all of these tiny little self-similar versions of human bodies like and of course they're different but they're also very much the same then if you want to expand that outward and you want to look at the earth the earth is an organism you know it's got all of these ecosystems of varying sizes that come together to make up larger and larger ecosystems much like the human body we have all of these ecosystems of cells that come together to make us up and the earth is really no different. You know, I mean, lots of people do consider the earth to be a living organism. There's other people that might dispute that. But I would say at this point, it's pretty hard to dispute because how is that any different from the ecosystems in our own body? The ecosystems all work together. And as we know from, you know, all of the studies around climate change and animal and insect extinction, every part matters and we can't lose pieces of the puzzle or everything's going to go to shit. Okay, so here's yet another example. Think about the atom and compare it to a galaxy or a solar system or a planetary system where there's moons circling around it. We see this thing, this this uh, pattern of a center of mass with something orbiting around it. And what I find really, really cool about that example is that in the macro scale when we're talking about planets and outer space and the galaxy all of that rotation around a center of mass is happening due to gravity but when we take it to the atomic and subatomic scale we're talking about an electron spinning around the nucleus of an atom that's not happening because of gravity but we're still seeing that pattern you could argue that it's a little bit different but ultimately the center of mass and the thing spinning around it is the same we can also see Fractal patterns in trees and plants. We see them in waves. Um, Look at the sand on a beach or the sand on the ocean floor, the way that the water or the wind can shape the sand into patterns that perfectly replicate patterns we see in the clouds. You know, these these structures exist all over the place and can can be repeated by different systems. So it feels important to mention the golden ratio, or phi. Um, It's a number and it's a comparison between two numbers. And this golden ratio is observed across nature, just like fractal geometry just like self-similarity. The golden ratio is something that can be applied to fractals and can be applied to self-similarity. And when it is, we see it all over the place. We see it in the human body. We see it in seashells. That's like the most famous example, but we see it in tons of plants. We see it in forests. We see it in trees. The list goes on and on and on, like outer space. Like we, we truly do observe the golden ratio all over the place, which is really fascinating. So it feels really important to mention here too. So one of the reasons that fractal geometry and self-similarity and the golden ratio all sit at the heart of my philosophical view of the world and of the universe is because we see it in so many places that it makes me want to apply it in places where we might not necessarily see it. So if you take the cell to human to earth example, you know, we, we see that the earth is made up of beings of creatures of organisms and our body is also made up of organisms every organism is made up of more organisms is it possible then that we are part of a larger organism i mean obviously we are with the earth but could the earth be part of a larger organism that we're way too small to comprehend that to me feels logical and like maybe i'm way off base but it's a conclusion that I've had I guess for a while now and I really like it and that's the reason that I believe that the universe is probably some very large advanced version of a person. Like the cell is also not aware that it's inside of a human body you know and there was a point where we as humans weren't aware that we were part of a larger organism because we couldn't see that but now that we have science and Information on our side, we can see that, like, okay, we're part of an ecosystem, you know, like we're one piece of that. So to me, it doesn't feel unreasonable to speculate that perhaps that pattern might extend onward for who knows how long. If we can observe the pattern of a cell to a human to the organism that is the earth, what's beyond that? It seems reasonable to at least ask the question. The other thing I want to talk about um that is a for me very compelling reason to believe that the universe has this self-similar structure and that the universe might be made of consciousness and I'm definitely not the first person to talk about the universe being made of consciousness so that's not an original thought. I will say however though that like I've been thinking about this stuff most of my life and so a lot of the ideas i'm sharing today like i can't cite exactly where they're from because they're from like shit like watching waking life in my very formative years you know so what i was going to start talking about is dreaming and lucid dreaming so bear with me here i'm an advanced lucid dreamer i have been lucid dreaming since i was a little kid and i've had sleep paralysis as well since i was a little kid sleep paralysis is a phenomenon for those of you that don't know where You basically, your mind starts to wake up before your body does. And when you're dreaming, your body puts, your body is in a state of paralysis so that you don't act out your dreams. And so uh, this is sort of like, I guess, a light disorder where your mind starts to wake up, your body is still paralyzed, and you're aware of that paralysis. Fun fact, sleepwalking is basically like the inverse of sleep paralysis, where your body doesn't properly go into that paralysis state while you're dreaming. And so you just start acting out your dream. So regarding sleep paralysis, it used to be really, really scary. But in my, I guess, early 20s, I learned how to get from sleep paralysis into a lucid dream, which has been a fascinating experience. And so I don't find it very scary anymore. And Coincidentally, I was on a podcast a couple of years ago called The Dream On Podcast. The host's name is Jennifer. I'm going to link the episode in the show notes. It's a really great podcast if you're interested in dreaming and lucid dreaming. And I was on getting interviewed about sleep paralysis and my ability to turn it into a lucid dream. And so, yeah, there's more information about that out there if you want to listen to it. I did not have a podcast mic at the time, so heads up, my sound quality is garbage. But uh, Jennifer did her best, you know, like I was working with a shit set of headphones at the time. So God bless. Anyway, dreaming and lucid dreaming. Dreaming is a form of world building. Our consciousness literally builds worlds. In these worlds, we can see, smell, touch, feel, taste, hear, all the five senses. Dreams can and do feel incredibly real and as a lucid dreamer I've delved extremely deep into experimenting with dreams and with the nature of dreams. I have consciously built worlds you know like I have been in sort of a void state where it's like just this grayness and this like there's nothing there and I've started to like build up from there to create a world around me that's very difficult to do. So there's there's world building that happens subconsciously and then for very advanced lucid dreamers there's world building that happens consciously but when you land in a dream and you're like in some random city or you're in a building or you're in a field whatever your brain has put all of that together and you're just there right your brain built that without your input without your conscious input and so this tells us that consciousness is capable of world building Some of the other things that I've done in my dreams, I've been able to create objects from thin air. I've summoned people, which by the way, really doesn't work very well. I've only ever kind of managed to get sort of a ghost of the person I'm trying to talk to, like a hint of them, but like it's not quite correct. And that's kind of true for all things when you're trying to build stuff or do stuff or create stuff in a lucid dream. Like it's almost better to just go around and explore what's there rather than try to like control too much of it, which is something that I guess, I don't know, I just learned over time because at first it was like, oh my gosh, I want to figure out how to like build the exact thing that I want to be doing and see the exact people that I want to see. But that's actually not as rich and as exciting because it's so difficult, right? Like it's it takes so much power, so much brain power to do. like it it, it feels like you're lifting something heavy with your brain. I don't know if that makes sense. And then whatever you manage to do is just kind of like half there or like partially there. It's not complete. But anyway, back to what I can do in my dreams. I've used all of my five senses just to test things out. I have examined the dream materials that I'm seeing. Like I've looked at myself in a mirror. I've looked at a painting close up or I've looked at a blade of grass or a leaf on a tree. And I also, very interestingly, have the ability to put my dream into a higher focus. So if like the resolution is very blurry, like say like 480, you know, I'm able to just like, by saying a command to my dream world, switch to a higher resolution and suddenly things come much more into focus. And I want to mention all of these things because I want to make very clear that, you know not everybody has dreams or not everybody remembers their dreams. And lots of people don't have lucid dreaming ability, so they might not be able to examine their dream world in this way. But I do want to make clear that these things are possible. I've done them and I know other people that have done them because as a lucid dreamer, I talk to other lucid dreamers because it's not a well-studied area. And like Jennifer from the Dream On podcast once said to me, and it always kind of stuck with me, we are the experts on lucid dreaming. You know, like unless people are going to really start to study it and like build a base of experts on the field. It's just us, you know? It's just the people that know how to do it and are talking about it. I'm not trying to toot my own horn a bunch, even though I do think this is a really cool skill. It's one of my favorite skills that I have. But mostly, I just want to, like, inject some credibility into, like, what I'm talking about because it's my own personal experience. So again, the reason that I, like, bring all of this up is, like, consciousness is capable of world building. Well, what does that then mean if we're gonna, like, extrapolate that into a self-similarity discussion. If consciousness can, if our consciousness as human beings can build worlds, imagine what a higher form or a more advanced form of consciousness could build. Could the universe or some larger entity inside of the universe that we have no concept of because we're too small, could it be having a dream? And could that be our whole entire life? That makes so much sense to me because of the self-similarity in the universe because of the nature of these repeating patterns and because I'm observing this within myself if this exists for me if this is something I can do with my consciousness then consciousness can do this and if there's a larger form then the type of dreams that it could have would be way more advanced than the types of dreams that I've ever had and could it be like living a whole ass human life I think it could. And to be very clear, a lot of this is not original thought. A lot of this is stuff that I've picked up over the years, over time, doing a lot of speculation, having a lot of conversations, watching a lot of weird shows and documentaries, reading a lot of books. It all has come together into sort of like a more cohesive view of the universe and of death. But like I said before, because because it's such a it's been such a big part of my life for so long. It's not really me citing anything. But I want to make clear these, these are not, like, original thoughts, right? So I've been wanting to do this episode for quite a while. And I've been working on it for a while. Like, three months, maybe. <laughs> like, just chipping away. Mm-hmm. Um, you might be able to hear that I'm using two different microphones at different points. The entire Michael Jackson segment... Was recorded like a couple, that was the first thing I did. I did that in like October, but um, it's early January 2023. And on New Year's Eve, I was hanging out with a couple of friends, and we were all talking about the show Midnight Mass on Netflix. And we were talking about the monologue that Aaron gives, I believe, in like the last episode. And it was really cool because it was, to date, the best description I've ever heard for, like, what the universe is and what death is. And I was like, oh my god, I need to read this in the death episode. So I am going to do that. Quote, myself, my self. that's the problem. That's the whole problem with the whole thing. That word self, that's not the word. That's not right. That isn't. How did I forget that? When did I forget that? The body stops a cell at a time, but the brain keeps firing those neurons. Little lightning bolts like fireworks inside. And I thought I'd despair or feel afraid, but I don't feel any of that. None of it, because I'm too busy. I'm too busy in the moment, remembering. Of course, I remember that every atom in my body was forged in a star. This matter, this body, is mostly empty space after all, and solid matter? It's just energy vibrating very slowly. Why? There is no me. There never was. The electrons of my body mingle and dance with the electrons of the ground below me and the air I'm no longer breathing. And I remember there is no point where any of that ends and I begin. I remember I am energy, not memory, not self. My name, my personality, my choices all came after me. I was before them and I will be after. And everything else is pictures picked up along the way, fleeting little dreamlets printed on the tissue of my dying brain. And I am the lightning that jumps between. I am the energy firing the neurons and I'm returning just by remembering I'm returning home. And it's like a drop of water falling back into the ocean, of which it always was a part. All things apart. You, me, and my little girl, and my mother, and my father, everyone who's ever been, every plant, every animal, every atom, every star, every galaxy, all of it. More galaxies in the universe than grains of sand on the beach. And that's what we're talking about when we say God. The cosmos and its infinite dreams. We are the cosmos dreaming of itself. It's simply a dream that I think is my life every time. But I'll forget this. I always do. I always forget my dreams. But now, in this split second, in the moment I remember, the instant I remember, I comprehend everything at once. There is no time. There is no death. Life is a dream, it's a wish made again and again and again and again and again and again and on into eternity. And I am all of it. I am everything. I am all. I am that I am. End quote. So that's basically what I think death is. I think that's a really nice way to think about death. You know, like, who knows if that's what's real, but with the evidence, uh you know, very heavy emphasis on the air quotes around evidence that I've presented here today. I feel like I can make a compelling, maybe also an air quotes, argument for that being a fairly accurate description of death. So thank you to Mike Flanagan and team for putting together that horror limited series masterpiece on Netflix. So I think I've covered the things I'm going to cover. It's my hope and my dream that we can come together and deal with death better. What does that look like? I don't know. Maybe it looks like talking about it more. I know a lot of people that don't want to talk about death, and I think it doesn't serve us to be in denial about something so inevitable. And I think it's really cool, too, how a lot of the elderly have a very different perspective about dying like it definitely seems like there's something about aging and being on the planet for a while where you get to come to terms a little bit with it you get to find some peace around it to the point where a lot of the elderly people that i know will say things like i feel ready to die something i can't relate to at 33 years old so that gives me hope that it's not always going to be super scary I also hope that one day the concept of a death doula will be a little bit more mainstream. I know that doctors and nurses work really hard in palliative care units and in hospice to make people who are dying very comfortable. But I still think that you know that's just sort of the medical side of things. and while there's definitely like care and humanity there, it would be really cool if there was more people who were kind of experts on the process of dying. In terms of like the emotional and the spiritual side of it um, and not just giving people like the option to speak to a priest or something in a hospital, you know, when lots of people aren't Christian and lots of people just wouldn't resonate with that kind of thinking. I guess all that to say is that I don't know what the answer is. Um, For myself, the reason I'm doing this episode is to contend with it a little bit more internally and hopefully it helps somebody else do the same and if not I'm sorry (laughs) I did try to do that that's my intention thank you so much for coming along with me on this journey I guess my other episodes have been a little bit more research-based and this one was kind of just a chat (laughs) a fireside chat if you will I do, of course, have a few things to link in the show notes. There was some research done, some light research. If you want to follow me on Instagram, it's at Hello Submarine Podcast. And I also have an email address, which is Hello Submarine Podcast at gmail.com. And of course, there's my website, Hello Submarine This is where I have all of my show notes. And the link to the show notes for this episode is in the episode description. Please do feel free to reach out if you want to chat about whatever. Wishing everybody a happy January, a happy week, a happy day, a happy life. It's hard to say goodbye, but I'll do it now for real this time. Take care.